there's definitely always going to be a struggle against like influence and like perceptions of self and like confidence. But it's different when you can look and see someone who is like you. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Renato Zimbrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, currently offering possibly the best thing to ever happen to relief printmaking, their Woodzilla presses. Beautifully made in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that makes them affordable and accessible whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. Available across five sizes, each Woodzilla press is precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue work or stress for the artist, while still guaranteeing that beautifully printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. My guest this week is Chloe C. Alexander. We talk about the power of boredom as a creative catalyst, public art projects and the rewards and challenges therein, how working with her children leads her to think about the ways in which they are influenced and the great art opportunities in beautiful Atlanta. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to go under the influence with Chloe C. Alexander. Hi, Chloe. How's it going? I'm good, Miranda. How are you? I'm really good. I'm good. Thanks for joining me. And I'm excited to to speak again. We got to meet at Print Austin in person, which was great. And kind of circle back to learning more about your work and more about Chloe as a printmaker and as a person. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Would you please introduce yourself and let people know my, which have now somehow become the classic Hello Print Fan <laughs> questions of the who you are, where you are, what you do. Yes, those are my favorite questions when I listen to Hello Print Friends. So oh, I can answer them now. <laughs> so I am Chloe Alexander. I am a printmaker, an artist, an educator, and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Beautiful. And then where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? So I live just south of Atlanta and I grew up maybe eight or nine miles from here in a like rural suburban community. And I'm the youngest of five kids. My closest sibling is seven years older than me. So I spent a lot of time by myself because when I was a kid, my siblings were like teenagers. They were out hanging out with their friends or dragging me to hang out with their friends because they were like built-in babysitters. And so art was like my way of keeping myself occupied. I did grow up in a neighborhood that had lots of kids, but I wasn't like super, in hindsight, I wasn't super social. Like I had my few neighborhood friends and of course I would do the outdoor things, the big massive kickball games and things like that. But (laughs) my favorite Mm -hmm. thing was to like hang out in the house and do stuff on my own. And my parents kind of indulged me. They were, they didn't work artistic careers, but they 
were very interested in art, music. My parents would take us to plays and concerts and things like that. And so they indulged me if I wanted to get a throwing wheel, they would buy it for me. That's great. Yeah, like I had a loom for weaving. I learned how to do like beadwork as a kid. I, when I went to summer camp, I always took the arts classes. I loved art class in school. And so that's kind of how I got interested in art just as a way to occupy myself. Yeah. And so it sounds like you were kind of like a little bit of an introvert or at least someone who, as you said, you like to be inside and, and do those things. Do you think that it was, there was something about the act of making that kind of contributed to that? Like you were like, oh, like I have this, I don't necessarily need to go out. Or do you think it was maybe if I'm going to stay in, I want to do art? Where do you think it came from for you? It was one of those things. I can embrace my awkwardness now. I'm fully transparent in <laughs> like, my introvertedness. I can have conversations with people and I can interact, but I'm also, I don't force it if I'm not in the mood or whatever. I'm like, mm, I'm just going to hang out inside tonight. Um, and so I think it was just one of those things where it was comfortable for me and it was something that I owned mm-hmm. and it was something that I didn't have to necessarily like fit in in any kind of way or know anything special. I could just have complete license to do what I wanted to do. And I've also always liked learning and it was like something that I could always oh, yeah. continue to do and not get bored with it. Like there's always, even now, there's always something new to explore or something that I might know about a process or a technique, but I'm not super versed in it. So it's always an opportunity to like have the experience of something being fresh and something to kind of explore and discover. And that's something that art did for me. Just the repetitive drawing something over and over again, like getting eyes out of magazines and drawing them Hmm. and trying to make them look perfect. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing has just always felt exciting versus playing a sport and maybe being good at it, maybe not being good at it, not being abreast of all the pop culture things that all my friends knew and I could never be in those conversations. So, <laughs> Oh my gosh. It's exciting. I, I actually identify with that so much. I was talking with a friend about it the other day that as a kid, I always felt like the other kids had been like given this handbook of how you interact, <laughs> what you're supposed to be into, how you're supposed to have conversations. And I just didn't understand any of that. I would show up on the playground and I was like, what the fuck is boys to men? <laughs> Like, I didn't understand. Like, I don't know where they learned. They all were off somewhere learning that this is what you have to be into. And I just missed that day or something. I never got it. So when you were saying, like, the pop culture stuff that you didn't connect with, like, I feel like I had that same experience as just being a kid who was interested in just other things. And there's not a lot of space on the playground for the kid that's interested in other things. That was my experience anyway. Like, I remember many moments riding the bus and like someone has a tape player or whatever and a song comes on and everybody knows the words. I'm like, I have never heard this song in my life. Mm -hmm. But I was really good at playing cards. So that. that. (laughs) Wait, (laughs) say say more about that. Like you were, were you able to get like, I don't know, lunch money off kids? Were you like. like, (laughs) Well, yeah. So I was bus. Maybe. 
just driving to my middle and high school, it was like maybe a 45 minute drive, but being bused, it turned into a two hour drive because you have all these bus stops. Right, yeah. Pre-cell phones, we had to find ways to entertain ourselves. So we would play cards and we would play games and stuff like that. So yeah, it was definitely a thing. If you didn't know how to play spades or you didn't know how to play tunk, like you could not fit in on the bus. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think I'm just good at counting and analyzing and keeping track of my head. And so that was one thing. We did like play with with change. (laughs) Nothing major. (laughs) Nothing major. You didn't know what no one's house was getting foreclosed on, but yeah, (laughs) because yeah, that's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. That idea of that experience of like the, the tape player on the bus. And I feel like that still happens to me to this day and not because I feel like I'm, Oh, I can't listen to pop music because I'm too intellectual. Nothing. Like I just, I just don't know where people consume this stuff. I remember the first time years and years and years after her heyday hearing a Katy Perry song. And I was like, this, this is what, (laughs) this is okay. I mean, Sure. But like, like my, my husband, who was much more in tune with that, something will come on and he'll be like, you don't know Katy Perry's California girls. He's like, I was in New York. You were at least on the West coast. Like, how could you not know it? And I was just like, no, I don't know how, where, where was the rule book? That tells you the songs you're supposed to know. I still don't know where it is. I still don't know where it is. No, me neither. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's, that's fine. This is why this is, is thinking about it. This is probably why I like to have podcasts where I can have like really thick, focused, controlled conversations with people where I'm in the driver's seat is because I was just like, I'm like, yes, like this is how I know how to interact with people is under controlled <laughs> condition. Otherwise, I'm just I'm an alien. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so when, so it sounds like, yeah, that, that art and making was this big part of your life, the, the, the throwing wheel and the loom and, and the drawing and all of that. And so did you always think absolutely Chloe is going to go to art school? You had the support in the family. Was that something that you always sort of knew growing up? Not necessarily. And now I can say it's probably because there weren't tons of models I could look to of people who did art for a living besides like my art teacher. Yeah. And I did not want to be an art teacher, which ironically, I'm an art teacher now. But um, <laughs> like, that was the only thing I could think of was you could be an illustrator, like a book illustrator, or you could be an art teacher. And that was it. And neither of those things really interested me. And I lived in a house where everybody went to college. And so it wasn't a matter of, are you going to go to college? It's like, which college are you going to go to? And so mm-hmm. I always said, if I'm going to spend four years of my life, I'm going to do something that I want to do. And then I can figure out a job later. And so I did go to art school, but it's funny because I got into a school that is now closed, Atlanta College of Art, it's now SCAD, but I got into this huge argument with my dad about going to a private school for college. He's like, we're not going to pay for that. We are in Georgia. We're in Georgia. If you have a certain GPA, any state school is free. Besides, that's awesome. Yeah, fees if you maintain a certain GPA. He's like, you've got this scholarship. It's called Hope Scholarship. And you want to go to this private school. Like, if you do this, you're on your own. You're never going to get a job doing art. And so I was just like, what? And it to this day, that bothers me. Like, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I think if my kids wanted to do something, I would be like, I don't agree with that, but it's your life. You'll figure it out if I don't Mm -hmm. agree with you, but maybe you'll prove me wrong. And I mean, my dad was very practical. He was right. I definitely didn't want to get out of college saddled with like tens of thousands of dollars of debt. But 
that's just an example of there being no models. There was no models for him to look at and see right. a life that would be successful from pursuing art. So I got a degree in printmaking because my high school teacher, I made my first print when I was like 16 years old and I was hooked. And mm. he went to Georgia State also and like taught me relief printing, how to do like a reduction print and relief. He taught me how to do like dry point etchings and plexiglass and what else? I did like transfers in high school and I did monoprints on plexiglass plates. So he taught me like really an intro to a printmaking course that was like just for me because I think he saw that I was really into it. And I think I liked the process and like the problem solving aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And so I went to school for printmaking because it was like the one place where I felt like I could see myself doing this forever. <laughs> and it was yeah. also very, very niche. Like there weren't a ton of people in the printmaking program. So you got a lot more feedback from that professor. So that's what I ended up doing. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering a little bit if you mentioned earlier about being good at cards and being good at counting. And I'm wondering if there's something about that kind of mind that can keep track of all of those details and keep all those balls in the air at the same time, that there's some skill set that actually does overlap with printmaking. Because if you're doing layers or if you're thinking about different aquatints and how long they need to be in the acid, I've never counted cards. <laughs> but I, I wonder if, if there is some kind of connection to a mind that's interested in both those things. I mean, I think there has to be, and I've heard the whole theory that people who are good at art, like think with a specific side of their brain. Mm. And I don't really buy that, especially with printmaking. There's so many minute calculations that you have to make, no matter how technical the process is. I mean, at a minimum, if you're doing like a reduction print, you have to keep track of your positive and negative space. Yeah. You have to like measure a margin around your paper or you have to like decide how large your paper should be and how many prints can I get with this much paper. And then if you're doing something like an aqua tent, you have to like calculate how long this needs to be in the acid. And so there's so much math that goes into it that I definitely see the connection between like logical reasoning and and art making for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's that false dichotomy that people like to make. That's like there are math people and then there are art people and like neither the twain shall meet. But I think even in math, particularly when you get up into really high levels of the math you're using in sort of quantum mechanics and that sort of thing, people will talk about it like it's an art form. Like Mm -hmm. there's different processes to try and get to the end result. Like there's, you know, not necessarily a right way to do it. And people can have different techniques. And I think all these different ideas that we associate more with art making actually does have that reflection. So yeah, I, I agree that it's, it's, I mean, basically, like, any binary is usually false in the world, you know what I mean? But that one, yeah, in particular. So, and that, and I think it's unfortunate that if kids hear it. Like, if you're good at math, someone might say, like, oh, like, this is going to be your thing, math and science. Or if you're good at art, the people in your life might assume that that doesn't mean that you can be good at at, at, at anything in STEM. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I'm glad that, like, we're we're understanding that the world is a lot more fluid now. Yeah. It's way more gray than black or white for sure. <laughs> for sure. For sure. So how would you describe your, your current practice? What are you working on now? So for a long time, I've been focusing on most of my work being print-based 
and adding different elements to it, creating varied editions and creating hand embellished prints or mm-hmm. creating mixed media works where I started with the print and then I would draw and I would paint on the surface. But most of my work is still print based, but I would say for the past couple of years, I've been doing a lot more direct printing, single mm-hmm. process mm-hmm. screen prints. And now, because I got a press recently, I've been doing a little bit more relief just to get more proficient. I know the the basics of how to make a woodblock print, but yeah. I've never really explored creating my own style or really the technical aspects of it to get a really clean print that looks the way I want it to look every single time. And as far as subject matter, a lot of my work is figurative. A lot of my work includes images of my children because they're around. And I have been exploring this idea of influence and different kind of manifestations and what it means in our lives and how influence both implicit and explicit like affects our behavior and affects our interactions with others and also kind of influences, I guess, what we see as our role in society and how we should be fulfilling that role. So just using all these mediums to kind of explore that idea. Mm. So I'm curious, this idea about trying to kind of find your own style that you (laughs) spoke about, because I think that that's something that a lot of artists struggle with and are looking for and that they want to find that own voice and that own way of doing things. Mm. What's your process been like on that journey? I went to an artist talk. I'll never forget. It was my birthday. And my husband was like, what do you want to do for your birthday? I was like, I just want to go get a drink. And I want to go to this artist talk. Uh, I feel like that's like (laughs) a very like mom answer. Like I want to go be a grown up for an (laughs) evening. Like that, like a lot of like moms and dads and caregivers or yeah that sounds like a very birthday wish for someone who's a who's a caregiver (laughs) (laughs) so I yeah there was this artist talk there's an organization based in Atlanta they're kind of nationwide called dashboard and the then executive director director of that organization was given this artist talk and it was just a Q&A session at the end, she was talking about like how she formed her organization that's completely run by women and they give opportunities to these artists to do really experimental things. And one of the questions during the Q&A was, what advice would you give to artists who are like trying to find their way? And her name is Beth Malone. And she said, I would tell them to make art to your taste. Hmm. And that really resonated to me because you can make art based on what's trendy or you can make art based on whatever's well received. But if you aren't making work that you personally feel is good or that you personally can see yourself continuing to explore and develop and manipulate over time, then you'll never really find that voice or kind of develop a style that's uniquely yours. And so it's weird because that's one of those defining moments. And I'm sure she doesn't know this, but (laughs) it made me go back and look at the work I was making. Because up to that point, I didn't make work for like five years. I started teaching math, ironically math. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I got so involved with that that I didn't make anything for like five years. And then I started dabbling and just kind of doing everything. And I went back and looked at my work and was like, what of this stuff do I really like? Like, what has worked to my taste? And I kind of landed on some prints specifically that I felt like, okay, this is, this is it. This is what I'm going for aesthetically or thematically. And I just kind of 
honed in on that. And I've always been that way since hearing that I can work on something forever. And if I'm not feeling it, I'm like, okay, this is trash. I need to start over or I need to redraw this or I need to rethink of how I'm going to kind of convey this idea. And that's just kind of been my my compass for developing a style. Mm. I feel like, I mean, that's such good advice because you are the one who's going to have to spend more time with these art images than anyone else, probably by quite a long shot. It, it, it focused attention anyway. I mean, people buy work and they put it in their house and they may have it for years, but that really direct focused attention of the hours and hours and hours that can go into making a successful image that's mm-hmm. you. That's the artist doing that. So the idea that you need to make something that you will like because you're going to spend a lot of time with it, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. for sure. And you talked about this idea of influence and that you're exploring that particularly in terms of the content. How does that manifest in your work? A lot of it comes from teaching and I always say I'm kind of a different kind of teacher. I'll even have conversations with other teachers and in my head, I'm like, I don't believe any of that. (laughs) Wait, can you give me an example of that? I'm really curious. Like I've just heard teachers say things about children and about like the way that they behave and like making assumptions about the type of people they're going to be. And I'm like, I was pretty awful in school, like in elementary school. And not because I was bad. I think I was just bored and I liked to make people laugh. And Mm. um, like for someone to make a prediction about me. I I think they would be way off the mark. Like kids are kids. And especially now I teach them in an environment that I teach art. It's very subjective. And I'll hear things about them academically that I never would have guessed good Mm. or bad. Like this kid is the valedictorian or this kid was really struggling. And I would not know because I see them just in a completely different environment. Right. And so after years of teaching and seeing the things that you teach kids to do and how we judge whether or not they are good students or not really has nothing to do with they're good people or not. And that is something that's kind of ignored, like their mental well-being and their ability to show empathy or compassion for each other or to give themselves grace is kind of like missing from the schooling of children. At least in this country, I know Mm. that in other countries, there are curriculums that are specifically geared towards making children like good citizens who can make good decisions that benefit them and like this greater good. And so that was kind of my entry point was trying to illustrate this idea because how many people become adults and go to therapy and talk about this thing that happened to them when they were a kid mm-hmm. or this relationship they had with a parent or with an adult in their life that still to this day is impacting them. And so it's kind of like an entry point for me to try to illustrate this really big idea in an abstract way and in a way that was interesting and seductive enough to get someone to like look at it a little longer and then ask the question. Because a lot of people, when talking about them, about my work, they see something that is familiar to them. I try to like foster a nostalgic aesthetic as well. And Mm. lots of people are drawn to that. And then when I talk about it, they're like, I didn't see that at first, but I totally get it. And, or they have like some experience that they can relate to. That was kind of like my inspiration behind the work. And from there, I've kind of broadened it from just focusing on children to focusing on adult. I did a series of self-portrait about like women and grooming, using mm. myself and my hair as an example, just based on messaging you get from 
mass media, like advertising, growing up in the 90s and like how very white mm-hmm. <laughs> images on television and magazines were. And there was no social media for you to see outside of like whatever you could see in your town or in your regional area. And like, it doesn't have to be explicit, this messaging, like your hair should be this way to be acceptable. And those messages, I think a lot of black women can relate to that and not just black women, like any woman can relate to that. And also like the explicit things that you're told, like as you're a child, like you should sit with your legs closed. Mm -hmm. It's like, what do you, how do you say that to a child? Like how, how do you explain to like a little girl what you mean when you say that? Or you're such a tomboy, like yeah. in a kind of disgusted voice, like just because I like to play outside, that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I made a series of self-portraits just kind of exploring grooming and using myself as kind of the source imagery. And it was focused on this idea of hair and things that people have said about my hair and my grooming specifically and like what it means. So it's something I, like I said, I could going forever and ever and think of different ways to kind of explore this idea of influence in different situations that I think lots of people can connect to and understand. Yeah. I think when we spoke at Print Austin, we talked about it a little bit, that idea of both being, I think about the same age in the 90s. I'm a 1984 baby. And so those are, the 90s are my teen years. And mm-hmm. how the messaging during that time, during those formative years was so white and so thin and so blonde. And it was just like, it was like, do you, well, you have three options. You can be Christina Aguilera, you can be Britney Spears, or you can be Jessica Simpson. These are the, these are the three very, the, these are the three ways that you're allowed to be an attractive woman, you know? And it just, it was, I, I think a lot of time periods are rough. I think that everyone maybe thinks that their time period was more rough than others to, to grow up, but I would hope that things are better now. I would hope that with the internet and the fact that, as you say, we have more than just whatever was on the TV, whatever that mainstream pop culture message was, you can go on Instagram or you can go on blogs when there was blogs before, and you can find something that more kind of lights up your heart. And you say, oh, that's something that I'd like to have. That looks like me. That's 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 a direction I can go. And it'll be interesting to see the young women particularly, but I think young young people of, of all genders, where they're going to feel like when they're in their late 30s. And they're kind of mm-hmm. looking back and they're looking at the ways that they tried to change their life around messaging that they received. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that idea of influence is, is really fascinating. And one that I think if you had asked me 15, 20 years ago, I would have said, no, like I'm beyond that. I'm i I'm an artistic individual and I didn't, I was able to reject <laughs> all of this programming, but now that I'm really kind of starting to get a bit more honest about it, I'm like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That affected me in ways that I never wanted to admit to And that's the water that we swim in is hard to see until we're given a different option. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. a good way to put it. And I think now it is very different. Like I was just having this conversation with a friend recently about there's definitely always going to be a struggle against like influence and like perceptions of self and like confidence. But it's different when you can look and see someone who is like you and someone Mm. who's celebrated who's like you, even if in your local sphere of who you're exposed to, you can see that there's something outside to strive towards. And like you can also kind of 
say to yourself, huh, this person doesn't like me for this random reason that I can't control. It's something wrong with them versus automatically defaulting to there's something wrong with me, which is one of, I mean, I have lots of opinions about social media, (laughs) but I do think that's the one powerful positive thing that comes from it. Mm. As a mom, you must think about it too, because you've got these little people in your life who are... (laughs) sponges, right? They're they're in yeah. that that period of of figuring out how they want to human when they grow up, right? <laughs> and but they're also of course growing up at a time with social media and every parent I know is having this front of mind a lot, these ideas mm-hmm. of how much do I show them? How much is too much? What are they looking at that I don't know? All of these big questions. Does that show up in your work at all? Not just your your sort of your own narrative, but now also looking at this next generation of mm-hmm. people who are being influenced every day by everything that's happening. Yeah, I think ironically with the political climate we're in right now, like since 2016, 2015, mm-hmm. uh, I can definitely see like some of the early themes in my work, which were about distraction and the conditioning of children specifically to kind of be compliant. And if you're not compliant, be distracted so that these sort of mechanisms that make the world go can operate the way Mm. that they were built to operate without much resistance. And so that was definitely a driving factor behind that work in technology specifically was something that was always top of mind because I always thought that like a kid who's distracted can't think critically and what better way to distract them than with this shiny thing that Mm -hmm. can constantly engage them. Like you don't have to wait for a specific hour or a specific day now to be stimulated. You can be stimulated 24 hours a day and a lot of technology is designed to make you not want to put it down like it rewards you oh yeah that you pick it up like you get that dopamine hit and you get addicted to that feeling um and it makes the boredom that kind of led to my creativity it it there's no space for that and so that was definitely present a lot in the earlier works that I did with my kids included, they were kind of like the the motif that I used to kind of illustrate those ideas. And they still recur. Like that's a, a theme that I still use. I'm working on a piece right now that revisits that. And um, I think it's also something that affects everybody and that I can even see in myself, like how I'm, how distracted am I by my screen time? Like how much time do I waste, like not engaging when I could be engaging or doing something useful or at least what I perceive to be useful for versus giving into the doom scroll. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's such an interesting point about the idea of boredom breeds creativity because Mm -hmm. of course it does. And I remember that as a kid, I grew up, as I talked about awkward kid, didn't have a lot of friends, rainy Olympia, Washington. And I would just go out into my yard and I would take the mud and I would put it on the trees in my yard and carve faces out of it. That's amazing. (laughs) So these little, so you'd walk into the the yard and it'd be like, I don't know, something out of Lord of the Rings or something, I guess. But uh, (laughs) I would never have done that if I had entertainment on demand. I would do it in in the lull in between school and when the actual good shows came on in the evening, like The Simpsons. That it was... (laughs) nothing else to do and and I also think that discomfort in general is a catalyst for movement and creative thinking mm-hmm. and I think while a lot of the kids these days are quite uncomfortable and what I mean by that is I hear all kinds of stories about mental health things in the schools mm-hmm. it seems to be a different kind of discomfort 
than just boredom. And it's it's a mental health things that I think appear to come from these very technological devices that are robbing them of the boredom. I don't mm-hmm. know if you found that as, sure. as a teacher, as someone who's on the, the front lines of it all. Oh, yeah. I have, I've had classes that are full and that are dead silent because everyone is like on their own device or is listening to their own kind of soundtrack. Like we were kids, you had your third block friends and then you had your friends who were like your real friends you could hang out with in lunch. And then you had the kind of forced relationships mm-hmm. <laughs> from being like in a class with someone that you didn't know. And I think a lot of that is it's removed. There are no, the necessary discomfort that teaches you how to cope in certain situations where you feel a little bit out of your depth. You can just completely check out now and just like scroll on your phone. Mm-hmm. And it's an easier way to deal with it. Like you just wait it out until it's over versus like <laughs> trying to figure it out in the moment. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. And a lot of the social structures that used to be in place the gathering of people around places of worship or bowling Mm -hmm. leagues or book clubs Mm -hmm. where you might interact with someone who's not your favorite person Mm -hmm. and you have to be present and paying attention because of socially you're not really supposed to i'm sure in the middle of church be texting although i'm sure people do (laughs) watching yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) that that particularly in the states has has really, really pulled back. And then COVID has all but decimated it. All of those moments of just little bit of social discomfort where you have to sit through it and you realize on the other side, it's not going to kill you. All that's gone too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe this is why print studios are so great because you actually do gather and you do have to work with people who might not be your favorite, but you need to be nice to them. (laughs) Yes. You need to be nice to them so that you can get on the press when you need to. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I'd like to make sure we have time to talk about your installation pieces as well that are out in the world and, and out in nature. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I was looking at the, the art of nature, light as a feather, these the woodcuts that were at the Blue Heron Nature Preserve in Atlanta. And mm. maybe just speak to a little bit how that project came about. And then also maybe your process as an artist when you're saying, okay, this is going to be art that's not going to appear in a private collection or in a gallery wall. This is going to break that boundary between art world and real world. This is going to go to the people and live amongst them as they're going for a walk. Do you think about that process differently too? Yeah, I am now. I think I honestly don't know where my interest in installation come came from. I had to take an installation class in college because it was the only one that was available and I hated it. Um, <laughs> Wait, why? Why? It was just like the constraints uh, around uh-huh. it. I, I did have one installation that I really enjoyed because we got like a room, like each person had to go on campus and find a room or a space that they could get permission to use. And that one was, I really enjoyed that one. But other than that, it was just like the constraints of like creating this thing that had to be in a lot of cases self-supporting or we were limited as far as what we could use. Like we did one where everything had to be like recycled material and we couldn't paint anything or alter anything because we had to recycle it when we were done. Mm. And (laughs) I mean, I get it now in retrospect, like, oh, this was like to teach you to think outside the box. But in the moment, I hated it. And so I think what led me to 
installation in my own practice was just like my love for public art and how it's almost like an Easter egg hunt that you didn't know that you were in. Mm -hmm. Like you turn a corner and there's just like this beautiful sculpture or there's this like massive mural on a 10 story building. And it's kind of like something that you can experience even if you didn't intend to. And it's something you can even look forward to. Like I remember on my commute to a job that I used to work at, there were these shipping containers that kind of like sat up, stacked on top of each other, maybe like three or four high. And it was like, trust God and pray. And it was just like so ominous, like this post-apocalyptic kind of fields. And then I looked forward to like seeing that every day because it just kind of fit <laughs> like when everything is bleak. But I think that had something to do with it. And then in addition to that was just like being given the opportunity to go into this space. And it's so wide open and it's like, it doesn't make sense to just do something that I could do in a gallery or right. an exhibition. It just fits. So the Art of Nature is like this annual exhibition that happens every year. It's this beautiful nature preserve in the middle of Buckhead, Atlanta. It's like a really developed community in the north end of Atlanta. There's like high rises and tons of traffic. And then there's like this oasis in the middle of it that's been preserved like acres and acres. And there's waterways that go through it. And I've also always been really fascinated with stuff that glows, oh. <laughs> just, just, just because. And so I made those boxes previously for another installation to kind of like create an immersive experience for a textile piece that was just kind of suspended from the ceiling. And so the lanterns or light boxes were like suspended in front to kind of create a more kind of experience in the rounds. And I was like, how can I get these to be outside? And the art of nature is like a perfect opportunity. Like what bigger space do you have than outdoors to do something? And so a friend of mine, he's a fabricator. He made the boxes for me and we like worked on different configurations. And the first ones were made of birch. And then, cause those were meant to be inside. And then I asked him, I was like, can these be outside? He said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, what can I use? And so he suggested like this polyurethane that he had just laying around. He made a couple of configurations and um, yeah, I took the boxes, which had empty panels. And then I took just washi and printed it cause it's slightly transparent. And I got solar powered pendant lights and suspended them from the inside. And so during the day, they, because of the translucency of the paper, they captured a light beautifully, a contrast between like the dark edges of the box and the lightness of the paper. And then like the kind of delicate lines that the, the paper made when it was printed. Cause I used paper that had inclusions in it, like Thai Kozo mm. and just kind of like the delicate way the ink transferred over those inclusions. It was just like a really beautiful contrast. And then I hung them in trees. And so um, once the lumens for these lights I got gets below a certain number, then they uh, they turn on. And so many people love them. I actually took them down today. And there's a, there's a woman. She's like, oh, my God, are you taking those down? They made my day every time I went on my walk. Aww. And I'm like, yes, I'm sorry. The exhibition is over. But that was really fun to kind of figure that out. Like, how can these be outside? Thinking of how they could be outside long term, too, because they were just out in the open subject to getting holes in them or whatever, if something were to hit it too hard during a storm. But it was just like a really fun process figuring that out. Yeah. Were you able to interact with the public during the install as well? Because I feel like that's often a time when the general public actually gets a little view into the art world. I've heard stories of I was doing a mural and this woman came by and started talking to me that that time with 
public art, it's not just even it's it's space where it's there, but it sounds like it's also for a lot of artists, the install and the takedown and then any kind of programming around it as well. It's a really nice way to actually connect with people who may not, for whatever reason, have putting themselves within art spaces as a part of their, their life. Yeah, it is kind of a different aspect too because if you have work in a gallery in itself you have no idea who bought it like that interaction is completely removed and your interaction with that piece as well is removed like as far as where it's going to be and like what the conversation is going to be like and so with installation this one in particular was in a public space like along a walking path so I'm just going back and forth to my car carrying these little delicate lanterns and people are like oh my god what is that like, how did you make those? What are they made out of? So like, I'm explaining them. And then some people would just walk by and stare and be like, can I take a picture? <laughs> or like, say, are these for sale? I would love to have these in my house. Like after they were at the park, someone, we're trying to troubleshoot like how he can have them in his house without them mm. like falling apart over time. So that kind of interaction is nice because you can kind of see how people are responding to it, like in the moment. And also they can talk to the artist's and actually like learn more what was the impetus behind this or how is it made like technically or even just to say like I loved walking past these every day on my walk that like in a lot of art experiences you don't get that kind of interaction yeah yeah absolutely and you've also done curatorial projects as well that have that element of community engagement is that right yeah so I work part-time locally in the city that I'm in and one of the things I work on is like public facing art so not even necessarily exhibitions but like art related cultural events and kind of access points for people who maybe aren't professional artists but are do art as a hobby or they've got this painting that they've had in their house forever and it's like an opportunity to exhibit it and also performing arts we've had bands come out kind of cultural dancers come out we've had a mural festival where local artists like each got their own panel and they were put on display for people to come and interact with so like I guess a twist on your traditional festival Mm. where it's more people-centered and interactive versus like commercially centered like come out and buy things it's like well you can come buy things or you can come and listen to this band perform or listen to this spoken word or like meet this artist who's doing a lot of painting so that's been a lot of fun too yeah and I know I've asked you this before but I'm hoping you can answer again (laughs) because I I feel like it's good to have it on record which is like why the hapless printmaker we've been chatting for almost an hour you don't sound hapless in any way to me you've got so much going on yeah I'm totally hapless I'll give you a great example (laughs) so I like did this drawing and I scanned it and I had my transparency and I exposed it and I can't I expose a screen more times than I can count and I'm washing it out and I'm like why is this not washing out like it's just like a faint ghost of my image and like I didn't expose it emulsion to emulsion so <laughs> like I'm losing 70% of my values like I do stuff like that just for fun I guess just like, <laughs> <my toes. laughs> and it's also like I don't know I 
guess I'm kind of referencing how as a printmaker, that kind of thing happens. Everyone says the print gods aren't with me today, but like you can do something a hundred times and maybe the moisture in the room is a little bit too high mm. or maybe your, your ink is bad. Maybe your emulsion is bad and it, things just don't work out and you have to like think on your toes, like what is the solution to this or kind of backtrack what did I not do that I always kind of expect as a given kind of condition that is missing in this in this scenario that's making things go wrong? So that's where that comes from. Yeah, yeah. I like that, that the print gods, of course, that or the print mischief little sprites or something, yeah, that hang out in print shops and, <laughs> and, and look for ways to cause trouble. So, yeah. I'm hoping maybe a bit in the time that we have left, you could speak to kind of the art scene maybe more broadly in Atlanta. It's one that I am always intrigued by. I think a lot of that comes from Jamal Barber and his wonderful podcast, (laughs) and he's talked to so many great Atlanta artists. And it just seems like it's an incredible town from the outside looking in for art and one that maybe doesn't get the proper accolades for that or the proper proper place on the national stage as a great art city. But is that is that your experience? I mean, do you find that it's vibrant and supportive and the things that a working artist might like to like to have? Yeah, for sure. Like it's different when you're in, like you were just talking about, you can't see the water you're swimming in. Right, <laughs> right. But you don't realize like how many opportunities are available in Atlanta until you talk to other people and hear what's not available. Mm. Like a good example are there are off the top of my head, three grants in Metro Atlanta that you can apply for annually as an individual artist. And then I know people in other big metropolitan cities and there are like no grants available. And so I think as a metropolitan area, there is a recognition for how much arts support the economy. So the local governments are willing to kind of provide opportunities to foster the arts because not just because out of the goodness of their hearts, but they understand that it will benefit their larger economies. And so on that end, there are tons of like public galleries there along the Atlanta Beltline. They have a residency and the Beltline is an old train route that they've made into walking and biking paths that connect all of these neighborhoods around Atlanta. But they have like a huge arts trail where they do public art sculptures and murals and performances and they do a call for art every year. There are tons of murals in the city. There are tons of open calls for murals, which isn't typical. Like lots of murals in other places are just commissioned privately. We're here. There's an opportunity for you to participate if you've never done one before or if maybe you want more experience. And there's also like lots of galleries of every type that you can think of. Like there's the pop-up gallery spaces. There are the experimental gallery spaces. There are the very high-end galleries. There are the design galleries. And so there's kind of something for everybody. There are lots of residencies to participate in. Almost all the residencies provide some kind of stipend or studio space as part of them. And so there's just like a lot of ways to get involved, whether you're a super experienced artist or you're just getting started. Yeah. And the internet has helped that a lot. Like I'm from here, I went to college here and I, when I graduated college, did not know how to find an open call. And now, of course, like you just have to get on the internet or get on Instagram and you can find them everywhere. Yeah. Very cool. Well, what are you looking forward to? I know you said that you just took down that wonderful installation today but 
What's on the horizon for you that you want people to maybe keep an eye out for? If we have any listeners in Atlanta, any other local projects happening for you? So I have three shows coming up that I am preparing for as we speak, like I'm looking at my (laughs) talking to you. One of them, I can't say what it is, but it's a little bit outside of Atlanta at a museum. So I'm looking really forward to that. We just need to iron out the details, which is why I can't share it, but I will post it as soon as everything's confirmed. And then I have two residencies coming up. One is at Kala Art Institute. I'll be heading there. Oh, yay. Good old yeah, Kala. I love, love it there. I was joking. It's my new summer home. <laughs> and, <laughs> I have another residency with Black Women of Print. It's like a collective residency where several of us be going to Penland at the end of July. So lots of exciting stuff. Absolutely. And so where can people find you and follow you and see the residencies and see the exciting as yet to be named museum <laughs> collaboration? So I only have Instagram and I am the hapless printmaker and my website is thehaplessprintmaker.com. Beautiful. I mean, I think you don't really need more than a, a website and an Instagram in this day and age. I, I personally, every once in a while, for some reason, decide to try and get Hello Print Friend on Twitter. And I'm just like, this is terrible. There are no pictures. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I think that's that's perfect. Well, And I can put links to to all of that in the show notes. And yeah, thank you so much, Chloe, for taking some time out of your day to have a chat with me. It was really fun. You're welcome. It was great talking to you again. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards for you right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. As always, though, the very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Michelle Fong. We talk about the process of her building her world called Paluta and what it's like to take on a print project that could last decades. We also talk about finding inspiration from the new woodcut movement of China in the 1930s, her upcoming research trip to the North Pole, and I get an on-the-fly interview with the president of Paluta for a spot in this utopian artist colony in the sky. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.